I thought we could begin this evening with a little review. So if you were here last year, uh, you'll hear some of what we've talked about, but we'll move forward some. And we're going to uh, start this evening by looking at the book of Genesis, which uh, makes sense, of course, because this is the first book in the Bible. And it's uh, foundational, really. It's the first book, not, not accidentally. There's a reason Genesis is the first book of the Bible. You take Genesis out of the Bible, and you're not going to understand much of the rest. It's kind of like a foundation. It's as important to the Bible as a foundation is important to a house. And so uh, we uh, want to understand Genesis. It's okay that we're taking a long time, last year now, in the book of Genesis. This is so, so important. We want to understand what it means. And uh, to understand what it means, of course, we have to talk a little bit about things like background and who wrote it when he wrote it, some of the details behind the book of Genesis, which we did spend some time talking about last year. It's a real book written to real people, and so we need to know a little bit about the history and who those people were, and yet we don't want to just stop there. When you uh, read uh, the Bible, you read a book like Genesis, it's not enough to just know some of the facts because uh, we're not just interested in what Genesis says. Uh, we're interested in what Genesis means. If, if someone uh, says, I can name the author of the Pentateuch, that's good, that's great, but really you can't s stop there because you can know the author of Genesis and you can know some facts about Genesis without understanding Genesis. To understand Genesis, you need to know what it says and why it says it, both. If you don't know what it says, you don't know those facts, you'll have a hard time understanding why it was written. But if you know what it says and a lot of those facts, but you don't understand why it was written, you definitely don't understand what you're reading. Because the writer of Genesis wrote Genesis for a reason beyond just giving you more information or giving you facts. This maybe helps you understand a little why I preach the way I do on Sunday, Sundays. Sundays, a message is not just about giving you more information so you can know details about the Pharisees, but Luke wrote that gospel to accomplish something. And so we don't understand Luke unless we understand what he is trying to accomplish. And I'm not really preaching Luke's message unless I'm trying to accomplish what Luke wanted to accomplish. And the same is true with a book like Genesis. He is trying to do something by writing these stories. In other words, he's making an argument. So he's not just telling stories. He's telling stories for a reason. Uh, there are lots of things that happened in history. But he is choosing particular stories and writing those particular stories down to do something. And he's actually writing those particular stories down in the order that he writes them down to accomplish something, to make an argument. And so how do we know what he's doing? That's part of why we're here. That's part of why we're doing the, this Wednesday evening course. But it takes work. And so when it comes to studying the Bible, and especially uh, narrative, history, the Old Testament, one of the things 
that you have to learn is patience. It, how do you understand what the, the writer of the Bible is doing, what Moses is doing, what God's doing in these stories, is you have to look, you have to look, you have to look, you have to think, you have to think, you have to think. God could have written the Bible a different way. He could have just one, two, three, but he didn't. He wrote stories, and part, uh, he wrote different genres, actually, but one of the major genres in the Bible are, are, are stories, history, narrative, and part of why he did that is so that you would learn how to think. So the very way he write, wrote the scripture is designed to teach you how to think. I was hearing someone uh, talk about Job this uh, week, and he was saying, we usually, when we study the book of Job, we read the first couple chapters, and we read the end, right? Those, but the middle is very confusing for us. It's very hard for us. And he was saying, actually, one of the reasons those chapters are written that way is because Job is a wisdom book. And so the very way he writes the book of Job, the, 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 the style of Job is designed if you, to force you to have to think and develop wisdom to be able to understand it. And so part of why God wrote the Bible the way he did is to force us to think. That's how the study of the Old Testament is supposed to work. And it's obviously a privilege to be able to think about God and about truth. And that's why we're doing all this investigating. We started last year by just talking about who is writing Genesis and why is he writing Genesis. And we believe basically in the mosaic authorship of Genesis, and we've talked about some of the reasons for that. But it's helpful to remember because it can help us think about why this might have been originally written. Because we know the story of Moses. He's the one God used to rescue Israel. And so he is leading this group of people out of slavery into the promised land to become a nation after having been in Egypt for like 400 years. And so he's wanting to help them understand who God is, what God is doing, and why he's doing it. And to answer that, he goes all the way back to the beginning of the world. That's Genesis. And he starts in chapters 1 through 11, not by talking about the nation of Israel, but actually by talking about everyone, which is really significant. If we look at Genesis, we could say it has two main parts. And so when we open Genesis, it has, we look at it and it has 50 chapters, right? But of course, those chapters were put in later to help us read it. Moses didn't write chapter 1 chapter 2, someone else put that in, and it's helpful. But imagine if we took those uh, chapters out, and everything was all kind of smushed together. How would we divide Genesis then without that help? Well, one way we might try to divide Genesis is by looking at what the author focuses on. Is there a theme, or is there a subject, and is there a change of theme, or is there a change of subject? And so very broadly, we could say, in Genesis chapters 1 through 11, we're looking at what? The beginning of the whole world. That's kind of the subject. And then in chapters 12 through 50, he talks about what? Israel, the beginning of Israel. And so we have the beginning of the world, the beginning of Israel. 
But again, you have to ask why. Because this isn't just information. Why does he talk about the beginning of Israel after talking about the beginning of the world? And to answer that, you have to look at Genesis 1 through 11. And we spent a lot of time on that already last year. But we saw one of the primary things Moses is doing in the first 11 chapters is revealing why the world is in the mess that it's in. So I think you could say Genesis 1 through 11 is let's look at the world together and I'll show you the, the problem and really what is the root of the problem. And there is a, a lot of there are a lot of problems as we look at the world. Let's think of some of them just to get ready for Genesis 12, which is where we want to head today. But if you begin with chapters 1 through 4, he gives us a picture of the world before there were problems and after. So Genesis chapters 1 and 2 versus Genesis chapters 3 through 4 are pre-fall, post-fall. And what was life like inside the garden? If you look down at Genesis 1 and 2, what these chapters should be pretty familiar. So give me some descriptions of the world pre-fall. It was good, it was good. If you missed that, you're, you're, you're looking up a lot because it says it was good, it was good, it was good, and then it was very good. What else is happening? Verse 28, maybe look at verse 28. What, what stands out there? God made man, and what does he say um, at the very beginning of verse 28? God... Yes, so God makes man in a unique way. And then if you just look at the beginning of a couple verses later, it says God blessed them. God blessed them. So man is blessed. Man has dominion over the earth. God gives man food to eat. It talks about that. It, it, obviously, man is safe. Uh, in chapter 2, verse 1, uh, uh, we see that God, or 2, 1 through 3, we see that God blessed the seventh day. Verse 3 says, so God blessed the seventh day. The seventh day was a day of rest. Uh, in chapter 2, verse 8, God is taking care of man's needs. Uh, we find in chapter 2 that man is able to be in the presence of God and not die. God is walking in the garden. Uh, if we go down to chapter 2, verse 18, um, God is looking out for man. He says, it's not good that the man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. There's the beginning of, of marriage, but God is the designer of marriage. He cares about man. So life pre-fall is obviously uh, uh, amazing. We have good relationships with one another, good relationships with God, good relationships with the world. And then life outside the garden, post-fall, what was that like? If we look at chapter 3, uh, verse 10, um, or actually 3, verse 8, what happens in 3, verse 8? God's walking in the garden in the cool of the day, which is a beautiful picture. But what do man and, and his wife do? They hide from God. So they're hiding from the presence of God rather than enjoying the presence of God. Chapter 3, verse 10, they know that they're naked, so they're um, ashamed. There's a, they're afraid. I was afraid. Uh, they're they're 
shifting blame, we know, as God comes and says what happened. They're pointing at everyone else. There's conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman in chapter 3, verse 15. The woman has this great privilege in verse 16 of giving birth, but now that privilege is, is going to involve pain. There's, there's problems in the marriage. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. For man, work becomes difficult. The ground is cursed because of us. Um, they're alienated from God and from each other. God actually, such a sad verse, verse 24, he drives out the man from the garden. So we're outside the Garden of Eden, outside the presence of God, the special presence of God, and we're, we're not able to get back in without dying. Um, if we go down to chapter 4, verse 5, we see uh, Cain is worshiping, but his, his worship isn't pleasing to God. Um, God comes to Cain. You know this story. That's why we're not taking too much time. But chapter 4, verse 6, God comes to Cain, and he basically warns him, look, if you, if you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and uh, sin wants to rule over him. Uh, there's murder, right? Hostility towards God. Cain, when, even when God comes to him after he murders his brother, Cain is like so angry at God. Later on in this chapter, there's Lamech, and he is uh, killing people for offending him. Um, and he's basically saying in verse 24, I'm, I'm more powerful than God. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, that's what God said. Lamech's like, mine's going to be 77-fold. He's saying, God, you think you can protect Cain? I can protect myself better than you can protect anyone. So he's just incredibly proud. And so as you can see... Uh, Genesis 3 and 4 are intense. The problems are big. And I think it helps to read these two chapters together because they're meant to be read that way, chapters 3 and 4. And when you read them that way, you see a downward cycle of alienation. You get this picture of Adam and Eve sinning and the consequences. And then you look at Cain and Abel, and the second picture is, is even worse. And it only keeps getting worse as you read chapters 6 through 11. What are some of the problems that happen in, in chapters 6 through 11? or chapters 5 through 11. If you just look at chapter 5, um, look at the end of verse 8. Look at the end of verse 11. Look at the end of verse 14. Do you notice anything in common besides the fact that before the flood they could live a long time? What, what else do you see there over and over and over? It's not it was good. What is it? And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. And then we come to chapter 6, and there's this story of the sons of God marrying the daughters of men, and, and uh, there's some kind of whatever exactly is going on. It's a systematic attack on God's great plan, for sure, of bearing fruit and multiplying. It talks about God having regret and sorrow. If we look at um, chapter 6, verse 6, the Lord regretted that he made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. There's worldwide judgment. Um, chapter 6, verse 5 says, uh, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. Then you, after the flood, chapter 8, verse 21, it says, 
I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So there's this judgment, and before the flood, God says they're evil. After the flood, God says they're evil. They're just not able to change. Uh, terrible sin with Ham and his, and his uh, father, Noah. Chapter 10 uh, and 11, there's division into nations. Um, people are not unified any longer. There's a refusal to submit to God. God wants people to bear fruit, multiply, spread around the whole earth, and people come together and say that we're not going to do that. One of the things as you read chapters 1 through 11, it keeps using this, uh, it keeps giving you a geographical marker. It keeps talking about people going east. And the idea is that people are going further and further and further away from the presence of God in the Garden of Eden. They're getting further and further and further away, alienated from God. There's, there's little knowledge of the true God by the end of chapter 11. And basically, all of mankind has united to build a society with God, without God. And so uh, if we were going to paint Genesis 1 through 11 as a picture, if you were an artist... <laughs> I've always kind of wanted to do this. This was a dream to have, like, the story of the Bible in uh, paintings. There's, like, five main chapters of the story of the Bible, and the first chapter would be 1 through 11, basically. Or the first chapter would be creation. second chapter would be fall. And if you were going to paint Genesis 1 through 11 as a picture, you would have this beautiful world with this amazing garden, and then man cast out and unable to get back into the garden. And everything becomes very dark, and you watch as the world sort of spirals out of control until God begins again, and it's, it's fresh and beautiful. The flood is it's, it's horrifying in some ways. It's a, a terrible judgment, and yet it, it's almost like God gives the world a bath. He, he starts over, decreates the world, and then recreates the world in a sense, and we get another moment of peace. But it's just a moment because quickly we watch the same thing happen again until it's like the whole world now is standing outside the Garden of Eden and unable to get back in. And so it's really, really bad in Genesis 1 through 11. But in the middle of all these problems, there's also this glimmer of hope. As dark as it is, as bad as it is, there's hope. And where do we find hope in these chapters? This is review. We're going to get to chapter 12. But where do we find hope? In these chapters, and we're doing this review because Genesis was written for a purpose. To understand the purpose of chapter 12, you have to understand 1 through 11. And to understand 1 through 11, you have to understand that there's a problem in the world, but there's also, there's also some hope. And where do we find hope? Think about chapters 1 through 11. Where, where do we find hope? Yes. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So those are two big glimmers of hope. One is, I mean, Genesis 3.15 is the promise that in a sense drives the whole story of the Bible, that Eve is going to have a descendant who is going to do what Adam should have done, really. Adam should have, what should Adam have done when that serpent started saying lies? He should have stepped on that serpent's head. <laughs> he should have. Uh, protected the garden, but he didn't. And so one day God is going to send a descendant of Eve who will do that, do what Adam 
failed to do. So that's a big glimmer of hope. But what else? Maybe a little more subtle. This is not so subtle, but the fact that God doesn't kill Adam and Eve right away is a glimmer of hope. Because uh, he could have. He gives them a chance to repent. That's hopeful. It's also hopeful if you look at what God, when God comes to pronounce judgment on Adam and Eve, he doesn't say cursed are Adam and Eve. Actually, he says things like cursed is the ground because of you. But he actually doesn't pronounce curses directly on Adam and Eve. God makes them close. That's, uh, that's a picture of God continuing to care for them in their need after the fall. The promise of a seed, and we're going to have to remember that word seed. And then, of course, chapter 4, this battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Cain kills Abel, and we wonder, is the seed going to survive? But then there's Seth, and we see Satan didn't win. <laughs> After Cain kills Abel, Satan didn't win. Eve has another child. God provides a seed. And already from the beginning, we're getting this idea that there's hope, but the hope is not in man. The hope is in God. And so what do we need to do? It's rely on God. And there's this line of people who do, who call on God's name. That's how chapter 4 ends with, after this terrible story of Cain, Abel, Lamech, the, the, the seed of Cain, the seed of the serpent. There's this little glimmer of hope. There's Seth and this group of people who are praying. They're calling on God's name. There's a godly line, and yet we turn to chapter 5, we see there's all these problems again because there's all this death, but if we look closely at all that death in chapter 5, there's hope. Anybody know a couple glimmers of hope in chapter 5 in the middle of all that death? What are the glimmers of hope? There's two glimmers of hope at least. One, his name is Enoch, who doesn't die, right? He walks with God and he doesn't die, so... Death is a judgment for sin, but there's, a, there's something going on. There's some hope. Here's a man who walks with God, and he doesn't experience that judgment for sin. And then there's Noah, whose name means rest, and his father talking about the promise, seeming to hope in the, the seed. And Noah walks with God. He fears God, and he doesn't experience judgment, the judgment of God, or he survives at least the judgment of God. And then chapter 6, we see evil like we've never seen it before, and yet what happens? God puts a time limit on it. Verse uh, 3, the, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. That's chapter 6, verse 3. And that's God like saying, you know what? Judgment's coming. I'm going to put an end to, to this. And then it, it comes. There's the flood, this great judgment, but God saves Noah and he makes a promise to Noah that he's going to protect him. And you can imagine Noah going through that flood, how, how frightening that must have been and uh, devastating, even as he's out in the water for so long. But chapter 8, verse 1, how does that verse begin? But God remembered Noah, and that's, that's hope. And you're going to want to remember that. But God remembered Noah. That phrase is going to come up again. But that's a reminder that we serve a God who keeps his promises. He promises Noah he's going to bring them, him through that, and he remembers his promise. And after this judgment is completed, God makes another promise not to judge the earth the same way again. And so we know God's committed to this, this planet. And as he hits restart, it says, God blessed Noah and his sons. 
chapter 9, verse 1. And so that's an indication that God's intention is to do man's good, do man good. It's like God has this unstoppable commitment to blessing man. He is going to, he is going to bring blessing. And uh, in chapter 9, verse 2, he puts the fear of man on animals. I don't know what it was like before the flood, if, if uh, the world before the flood was very different. So if animals didn't fear man, but you can imagine you know, Noah being by himself, if the animals didn't fear him at all, that would be a pretty frightening, frightening world for sure. And uh, that's an indication that God is protecting Noah uh, from his environment. And yet, of course, Noah responds to God's mercy by sinning in pretty much a very similar, at least in terms of how it looks, he's taking fruit from the vine and ending up naked and ashamed, similar to the way Adam sinned and the results of that. And yet even that results in a blessing, a promise. And in Genesis 9, 27, God promises to dwell in the tents of Shem, which is a big promise. God is saying, I am going to live with a group of people. And after that, the world kind of descends into chaos again with the Tower of Babel, which is man's attempt to build a kingdom without God, which would be terrible in the end. And so God stoops down, and he doesn't let man succeed. And so there's a lot of problems, obviously, if we look at Genesis 1 to 11, but it's also clear that God's not going to let things end with Genesis 11, because he's acting. He is a God who makes promises and gets involved. But how? That's the question we're asking now. Because God has judged the whole planet, he started again, and yet people have not learned what they needed to learn. It's amazing. What would happen if God just wiped everything out, started with the most righteous person in the entire world, post-sin, made a commitment to that person? What would happen is the Tower of Babel. Because man's heart is evil. And so the question is, how is God going to fix that? How is God going to fix this? How can God bless man when man is like this? And that's Genesis 12 to 50. That's Genesis 12 to 50. Now we're here. Now we're here. This is the problem in the world, Genesis 1 through 11. Now let's talk about how God is going to solve it, Genesis 12 through 50. So these chapters are linked. They're not just uh, two completely uh, separate books. They are connected. And what's kind of cool is that if we look back at the way these opening chapters are structured, we'll see that the author has already given us a hint of what to expect in chapters 12 through 50 by the way he tells the stories. So he's got us thinking. So, so the question is, how is God going to solve? So the question is, God is going to solve the problem, but how? And if all we've read is Genesis 1 through 11, we haven't read Genesis 12 through 50, we don't know exactly how God's going to solve the problem. But if we look carefully at these first 11 chapters and we read them over and over and over again, that's how you're supposed to read the, the Pentateuch and part of why they're written this way is you're supposed to read them over and over and over again and just kind of as you go through your day, think about them. Think about the details. Think about the connections. And if you do that with Genesis 1 through 11, 
you'll see that though God hasn't told you everything about how he's going to solve the problems of the world, he has given you a lot of hints, a lot of hints. So let me, let me show you three ways he gives you hints of what's going to happen. First is through the basic pattern found in each of the stories. So you have four main stories in Genesis 1 through 11. You have the story of Adam, the story of uh, Cain and Abel, the flood, and Babel. And in each of those stories, if you're going to look at them, they follow a basic pattern. You have sin, you have God speaking and providing some hope in the face of that sin, and then you have judgment or punishment. Adam sins, God speaks, makes a promise, and then they're judged. Cain sins, God speaks, and even protects Cain a little, and then there's punishment. The flood story starts with that strange story about the sons of God and the daughters of men sinning, and then God speaks about how he's going to judge, but he provides hope by saving Noah, and then he judges. And of course, the Tower of Babel is man gathering together to sin, and God stooping down and judging. And you ask, where's the mercy? like we found in every other story, because that's the pattern. That's the pattern. The first three stories, you find man sinning, God speaking and providing hope, and then judging. And in this Tower of Babel story, you find God, man sinning, God judging, and there's one part that's missing as you end chapter 11, and that's God providing hope. So you come into chapter 12, just with the, that basic pattern of the first three stories and that one part missing in this story, you come into chapter 12 asking, how's God going to show his grace? Every other time, God has stepped in to provide hope. How is God going to provide hope here? And yet, that's pretty general, obviously. So we can get more specific, second, by looking at the way he shapes Genesis 1 through 11. So... Um, Genesis 1 through 11 falls into two main parts. You have pre-flood, post-flood. And if you walk your way through those two main sections, you'll see that they follow the same exact flow. So it's kind of like he provides you with a pattern in the pre-flood, A, B, C, D. And then as you look at the post-flood, you see A, B, C, and then you're expecting D, right? And so if you look at the stories in Genesis 1 through 6, this is something a guy named Bruce Waltke pointed out, but it's helpful. If you glance at some of the stories, you'll see that uh, they, if they have a lot in common, these Genesis 1 through 6 and Genesis uh, 6 through 11. There's uh, creation first. God creates and blesses. This is on some of the notes. That's why I wrote this part down for you, but... God creates and blesses in chapters 1 through 2. And then there's a sin that results in people seeing their nakedness and covering, covering their nakedness. And there's a curse in chapter 3. Humans are divided into two groups, people of God and enemies of God in chapters 3 and 4. Abel's killed and he has no descendants. Cain is judged and he has descendants. And we read about them in chapter 4. We get the genealogy of Seth all the way down to Noah in chapter 5. We read about these unlawful unions and wickedness in chapter 6. Then what? God saves through Noah in chapter 6 through 8. So that's the pattern. Now, let's read, uh, look at chapter uh, 6, verse 9 through 11, and see if that pattern repeats. So there's a pattern in the first six chapters. Now we're going to look and see if that pattern repeats. And it does. 
First, you get decreation and then creation again in chapters 6 through 9. And if you look at the way it's, it's written, he uses a lot of the same terminology in 6 through 9 that he uses in the story of creation. So it's like really clear in the way that he writes that the flood is being pictured as a decreation and then a creation, recreation in a sense. And then there's sin with the fruit of the vine, something to do with nakedness and uh, covering nakedness and a curse in chapter 9. And then there's a division between those who are blessed and cursed into two groups. We read about the descendants of the younger, righteous, Japheth, and then we read about the descendants of Ham. And after that, we have the descendants of the chosen son, Shem, all the way down to Terah. And then we've got man united in rebellion against God, this terrible wickedness. And so the point is there's a lot of similarities between the first set of stories and the second set of stories. And with so many similarities, we have to go back and say, what is missing or what do we expect to read next? Like he's saying, okay, A, B, C, D in the first set of stories. And in the second set of stories, he tells us basically A, B, C. And then we're asking, what do we expect next? What do we expect if we put those patterns next to each other? This is the A, B, C. What do we expect next is we expect to read about how God's going to save through a certain individual which is how the first set of stories ended with Noah. We're expecting as we finish the second set of stories to read about how God's going to save through someone like Noah, which is what we get in chapter 11, 27 through 32. So how is God going to save? We get an idea of what's coming by looking at the way Moses structures chapters 1 through 11. We're going to read about the promises God's going to make to a certain individual. We're going to get to chapter 12, and we'll get into more like just looking at the verses, but this stuff is fun for me at least, so you'll just uh, let me <laughs> have a little fun for a little while. But then, you know, if you decided to focus even a little more specifically and look at the story of the flood, this, that's the longest story in these chapters. The story of the flood is like the central story, and we can see even embedded in that story how there's a hint of where hope's going to come from as well. Because Moses structures uh, this story a certain way. And he tells the story of the flood using something called a chiasm. And we've talked about a chiasm before, but a chiasm is like a literary structure, a form that was often used in ancient literature where there's repetition at the beginning of the story and at the end of the story in order to highlight the key to the story, which is found in the middle. So, you know, we have, it, it sounds all sophisticated, but we have ways of writing now to make our point. They had ways of writing to make their points. And one of the ways they wrote to make a point was through something called a chiasm. It was like a, 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 a literary structure. And so here is the chiasm as observed by someone named Joe Carter in uh, the story of the flood. And these aren't always exact, but there's enough to make you think at least. And so you've got, this is that funny thing in your notes where it, it kind of has A, B, C, D. If you don't have notes, you can look at somebody else's or just kind of pretend to pay attention as I read through this. But you have Noah. Well, let me just look at it. You see how it goes A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, O, N, M, L. So it reverses. It reverses. And it all goes to that central 
point. And the point is, if you look at the top, A is Noah, you go down to the end, A is Noah. You see how, like, Noah, Noah, you can go through the whole story that way. Uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, B. At the end, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, B. And then the point is, I'm not going to read through all of that because I don't want to lose those of you who don't actually have the notes. But the point is, at the center of that story, chapter 8, verse 1, is God remembers Noah. God remembers Noah. And so that's like the key thing in the way he structures this story that he wants you to see is that the hope is found in God's remembering his promise. And why would that, since Moses, just for fun, is not just for fun, but just so you can think about that, Moses is writing to the Israelites. What's the key to them getting out of uh, Egypt? Do you remember in the beginning of Exodus? God remembers. They groan, and it said the next phrase says God remembers uh, the promise he made to Abraham. And, and that's the hope. God's made a promise to send a seed to defeat Satan. And while that seed is going to come under attack and be threatened, we, we come into chapter 12 hoping to find out how God's going to advance the story through his seed with confidence about him doing that because we've seen he's a God who remembers his promises. And so we're going to look at chapters 12 through 50 the next couple weeks. Genesis 1 through 11 asks a question or presents a problem, and Genesis 12 through 50 answers it. And really, Genesis is all about how God saves. And we're expecting God to answer or provide a solution a certain way. Genesis 12 through 50, we're expecting to see God showing mercy, God remembering the promise he made about a seed, and we're looking at these chapters to figure out who that seed is and how salvation is supposed to work. And I, I know sometimes it might be hard the first time you hear about some of these ways the Bible is written and parallels and all of those kinds of things like I'm describing here. But the Bible is a book written by God. And so it's genius. Um, and one of the things that makes the Bible such a work of genius, so what is genius? I heard this this week. This, I didn't come up with this, but this, I, I like it. What is genius? Imagine for a second you have a scientist, and he solves this really difficult problem. Like nobody's ever solved this problem. And he writes a paper on it. And he brings that article to an editor. And the editor reads that article, and he says, um, that's a really good article. Now here's what I want you to do. I want you to write that article in a way that a child can understand. And what does the scientist say? He says, that's too hard. Didn't you read the article? I can't dumb that down for a child. Now, what's too hard? Where's the genius? What, it wasn't too hard for him to figure out the solution to the problem. It was too hard for him to figure out a way to, to write that solution so that someone who was simple could understand it and a PhD could also understand it. And so that's, that's really genius. Genius is, able, genius is where you're able to write or, or present something that has so many layers and is so deep and you could like swim in that thing and yet at the same time it's conveying a pretty simple point that we all can understand even if we aren't, you know, we're just normal people. 
And the Bible's a lot like that. Many of these stories, we're not trying to make it harder than it is. Many of these stories on the surface, you, you read through them, you can understand them. But part of the beauty of it is there's more there. There's more there. And the more we read and the more we think, the, the, we're not finding, you know, things that, got, that are like some magic, like there's something in the white spaces that somehow we find. But God uses literary structures and ways of writing to help us see things about what he's doing. And uh, that's kind of why I find such joy in uh, seeing these, these patterns because they open up even a, a deeper understanding of who God is and what God's doing. And certainly as we look at Genesis 1 through 11, these chapters are structured in such a way to get us hoping for God to send a rescuer and to get us looking and wondering who that rescuer is going to be. And as we look at the end of Genesis chapter 11, we see that the seed, the rescuer, is going to come through a man named Terah and one of his sons. And we know, of course, that's Abraham. So as we read Genesis 12 through 50, we can say Genesis 12 through 50 is the beginning of Israel. It's the story of God's solution to the problem of the world. And that story divides into three major sections, a story about someone named Abram, a story about someone named Jacob, and a story about someone named Joseph. And reading these stories, it's kind of going to be like God, God's going to be saying it's, it's going to be him and not him, the seed, the rescuer. It's going to be him and not him. You can almost imagine the promise in Genesis 3.15 about the seed as being like a ring that is passed down from generation to generation, the ring of power. <laughs> and the one who holds the ring is key to God saving the world. And Moses has been tracing down, he's been tracing the passing down of that ring of power <laughs> all the way to Shem in Genesis chapter 11. And first he goes from Adam to Noah, and then he goes Noah to Shem, and then he goes Shem to Terah. And so in Genesis 11 verse 27, we're looking at Terah and his three sons. And we're interested because we know this is going to be the one God uses to save the world. And we're asking, actually, as we look at Genesis 11:27, because we don't know yet, we haven't read Genesis 12, we're asking, which of these three sons is it going to be? Is it going to be Abram? Is it going to be Nahor? Or is it going to be Haran? And uh, this story that we're going to look at about one of these sons, we know it's Abram, is going to be the big one. It's going to be the story that is key for understanding the rest, for understanding all the rest of Genesis, and really, in many ways, the rest of the Bible. And uh, before we look at it, let me show you just a way that Moses indicates we really need to pay attention to this story. And this is kind of fun, too. So again, we won't do this all the time, but just tonight, we'll, we'll do a little bit. This is fun. Moses hints that this story that we're about to read in Genesis 12 through 25 is a really important story. And let me just, let me show you a way he does that. Because, you know, we were talking about the structures of Genesis, the structure of Genesis and the way it's organized. And when we looked at Genesis last year, I don't know if any of you remember, but the main way that Moses organizes this book 
is through something called toledots. So that's just a fancy way of saying these are the generations of. He, he uses this little phrase, these are the generations of, 10 times. And that's actually important too, but. And so sometimes um, he'll say, these are the generations of, and he'll give a genealogy. Other times he'll say, these are the generations of, and then he'll tell a story. And it follows a kind of pattern, actually. You, if you write those 10 toledots down, you'll see the first time he gives a toledot, he tells a story, the story of the heavens and the earth. The next time he gives a toledot, he tells a genealogy, the genealogy of Adam. The next time he gives a toledot, he tells a story, the story of Noah. The next time he gives us a toledot, a genealogy. The next time he tells a toledot, what do you expect? Story, but actually he gives a narrative. Or he gives a genealogy again. So he repeats. And this is Abram. And then the next one is a story. And the next one's a genealogy. The next one's a story. The next one's a genealogy. The next one's a story. So why does he do that? There's, there's, you, you caught that, right? There's like one time where he, he, he varies his pattern. Well, why does he tell genealogies at all? We don't like them. But think about it. He's telling a story that covers thousands of years. And so how do you do that? One thing the genealogies do is help move the story forward more quickly. And yet he can't just fly over the whole history or we won't learn anything, which is why he slows down and gives us narratives. It's kind of like a genius way of telling thousands of years of history without getting lost. And we see how he normally switches back and forth between the genealogy and the story, but there's one time where he breaks that pattern. You have the genealogy leading to Abram, and then the story of Abram. And when a pattern is broken in scripture like that, it's like a little bit of turbulence in an airplane. And it's supposed to get you paying attention. <laughs> Something important is going on. That's one of the ways we know this story here is going to be key. And yet, of course, as we look at the story, or at least the genealogy, we don't know who yet to focus on, because how does the genealogy end? It says Terah, verse 27, Terah, when Terah had lived, oh, this is 26, when Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abraham, Nahor, and uh, Haran. So we've got a genealogy, and we're reminded we're looking for the seed, and we don't know which one of these sons it's going to be. And what happens first, Genesis 11, 28 and 29, tells us about the sons again. And then verse 28, we see one of the sons died. Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah, in the land of his kindred, in the Ur of the Chaldeans. So we know it's not him. We know he's not going to be the seed. And then he tells us Abram and Nahor have uh, wives. That's verse 29. And what do we find out next? The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now, Sarai was barren. She had no child, which is a little bit shocking because it's the first hint of barrenness in the Bible. And there's a lot of having babies in the first part of the Bible. Bear fruit and multiply was connected to blessing. 
And so this seems like, whoa, curse. And we're wary of this person, honestly. Is she cursed? And of course she's not. We're going to see. God, she's uniquely blessed. But it's not just the surprise when we read that of her uh, not having children. It's also the fact that if she can't have kids, what can't she be? Or what can't Abram be? He can't be the one. Because we're looking for the seed, and she's barren. And yet we keep reading, and something strange happens in verse 31 of chapter 11. We lose Nahor. It's Terah, Abram, Lot, and Sarai now who set out for Canaan. And they uh, set out because God tells them to go. And so chapter 12, it's going to be Abram and Sarai. The seed is going to come from them. But how? Because she's, uh, she's barren. And so God is taking a step forward here to save the world, but he's doing it by choosing the least likely person in the world to do it. Um, and Genesis chapter 12 through 25 is going to tell a story. And we're going to look at that next time. I can't believe I, I didn't, that's all I did. But uh, Genesis chapter 12, 12 to 25 is going to tell the story of Abram. Uh, uh, but any questions or thoughts? It's going to get fun. I won't do a whole review of Genesis 1 through 11 again next week. I promise. <laughs> we'll actually, I know that's my style, but we'll actually uh, um, look at Genesis 12 and the story of Abram next week. Maybe try reading it this week, Genesis 12 through 25, uh, and asking, what is, what is this about? Why would he choose these stories? Because actually... It's like uh, Abram lives 175 years, and um, these, to Moses, are some of the most important stories. Understand this. These are some of the most important stories for understanding Israel, for understanding how God and how salvation works. And so you got to look at these stories. And he, he's got 175 years of life. He only focuses in on about 100 of those years. He doesn't even start telling Abram's life until he's 75. And the stories he tells sometimes seem like, why did you choose that one? Like, of all the stories you could have chosen, there's a few in there that you're like, okay, I get why he sold the But some of those stories, you're like, why did he chose that one? Try to figure out, what is going on with Hagar? Like, she's what is really amazing about Hagar? What is surprising about Hagar? Like, and the way God relates to Hagar. Um, it's actually, Hagar is a really important part of the, the Abram story. And yet, very surprising. Like, she's Egyptian. Yeah, so there's a lot of cool things going on there. Um, but we'll have, I think it will, it will be uh, really a joy to look at that story next week.